Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. With us today is Mariam Thalos, professor of philosophy at the University of Utah, and she is here to discuss freedom. Mariam Thalos, welcome. It's wonderful to be here. So freedom is a nice, big, juicy philosophical topic, but like many big, juicy philosophical topics... Probably different people who write about it mean slightly different things by freedom. So I thought maybe we could just begin by figuring out what exactly are we interested in in this discussion? What are we taking to be the phenomenon of freedom before we then go on to say something about what we think freedom is? Well, what do we care about when we talk about freedom, when we use the language of freedom? Most people think, most philosophers think, that what we care about is a feature of either how a person deliberates about their life or about the character of the actions that they perform when they are living a life. Some actions are free, supposedly, and other actions are not free. And the free ones, perhaps, if we're lucky, they possess features that are manifested in the deliberation process that leads up to the action, or at least leads up to the first launching of the action. We're not likely to find something that characterizes all unfree actions. So what we're after is a characterization of what characterizes the process that leads up to a free action. Okay, great. So, yeah, I think we all have some kind of intuition that there's a difference between things we do freely and things we don't do freely. So if I quit my job because I don't like it, then I do that freely. But if I quit my job because somebody blackmailed me with scandalous photos, then I didn't do it freely. Right. What do you think is the most important defining feature of freedom? People disagree about the ta- of the reasons we should care about freedom, or at least the issues that are important to keep in one's mind when one is trying to articulate an account of freedom. Even people who are very close in philosophical orientation can differ very widely about what they think is important to care about in our account of freedom. So, for example, the difference between Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, both of whom stand in the existential tradition or pioneers of the existential tradition, Sartre seemed to think that that we all have the same share of freedom, as it were, the same kind of sovereignty over our lives. All of us have the same, not only kind, but quantity of sovereignty over our lives, whereas Beauvoir saw various 
differences among groups of people in respect to degrees of sovereignty over their lives. She, in particular, was sensitive to the ways that women were, and other groups as well, women, black people, Jews, and actually later on in his career, Sartre appreciated this difference, but it took him some time uh, to appreciate the differences between groups with regard to how they can govern their lives. Yeah, it's interesting, right? So on the one hand, you might think that if you're in jail, you have less freedom than somebody who's not in jail, on the one hand. On the other hand, you might think that, no, like every person has this just radically infinite degree of freedom so that no matter what situation they're in, they're free to interpret it however they like. And no matter how bleak their situation is, there's always a new sort of spin they can give on it. Yeah. Uh, so there's no way to really take away from a person's freedom. Right. Yeah, and, and this characterizes an important feature of freedom, really, the whether you think of it as all or nothing. If you start out thinking that either you've got all freedom or no freedom, then you won't be sensitive to nuances of ranges or types or degrees of freedom. If you think all freedom is radical freedom, then it makes no sense to talk about compromised freedom. So you've argued that one of the interesting things about freedom is that acting freely means engaging in a certain distinctive type of reasoning. What exactly do we mean by reasoning here? Is it something like just the process of figuring out what to do in a situation? Or yeah, what is reasoning? Well, I think reasoning can take many forms. But in, in this particular case, the kind of reasoning I have in mind revolves around what I call the self-concept or the self-conception. And it's not just me who calls it that. <laughs> it's a common term in social psychology and sociology to talk about markers of self or markers of identity. And reasoning with such things are very important for a number of reasons. One of the most important being is that it's part of how we regulate our behavior. So when I'm reasoning about myself, the collection of self-applied attributes or descriptors, let's just call them my virtues for a shorthand, when I'm reasoning about my virtues, the action of so reasoning involves putting into the relevant part of my cognition something that's going to regulate my behavior down the line. So, for example, if I think of myself as civic-minded and I've reasoned with myself, as it were, in a kind of before-the-time-for-action-comes sort of way, then when the time for action does come, I'm much more likely to take the civic-minded course of action than I would be if I didn't think of myself that way and I hadn't, prior to the time of action conceived of myself in that way. Yeah, it seems like there's sort of a two-stage process here. The first stage of the process is I think about what kind of person I want to be, and then at the end of that process, I decide I want to be somebody who's civic-minded. And what I'm doing there is I'm kind of like rigging my decision inclinations or something so that later on, when somebody spontaneously comes up to me and asks whether I want to go to a town hall meeting, I'm kind of predisposed to go to the town hall meeting because why? Because I'm the kind of person who K 
cares about things enough to go to a town hall meetings. Exactly. Especially if the terms that I used to myself when I was initially deliberating about it are used again. In psychology, the term for that is priming. So when someone primes me with the kind of language I use to sort of coax myself into that self-image, if that language is used with me again, then I'm very much more likely to follow the appropriate course of action. Okay, so thinking about what kind of person you want to be or what kind of virtues you want to embody is maybe an act of like self-priming. That's right. Hasn't there been some research where they've actually studied the effect of a person's self-conception on their behavior? Absolutely. There's quite a bit of research, and and especially in the last four or so decades, there's been a cottage industry of research on the topic of self. One of the seminal studies was conducted by a social psychologist and his team. The, The social psychologist is Claude Steele. And what they did in their initial experiments is that the subjects were contacted on the phone by the experimenters' confederates, as they call them, and in the process of the conversation, they were essentially called names, as Claude Steele likes to say. They were called uncivic, basically. And this population that were being cold-called are a population of people in the Salt Lake City in the 70s, and that community is one that thinks of itself as highly civic-minded. There's a great deal of conversation around civic-minded, community-oriented projects, and it's the culture of service in that community, especially among the women who take themselves to be the social support for the community. And what happened in the experiment is that after the conversation, the the conversation obviously left most of these subjects feeling badly about themselves because somehow they, as the experimenters intimated, they had let their community down. Several weeks later, the same people were called again by confederates of the experimenter once more, and this time they were given an opportunity to volunteer for some kind of community project. And the controls, people who had not been called earlier and called names, they volunteered at a certain rate, but the people in the experimental group, the ones that had been called names, their volunteerism was just through the roof. Yeah, and this seems like this is borne out by tactics that people involved in activism employ. Essentially, if you want to get somebody to participate in a collective action of some kind, you guilt trip them. That will only work if they already conceive of themselves as the kind of people who would do it. And if they've been given a reason to think they've fallen down on the job, that they failed to make that mark on a feature or a a quality that they consider important in themselves then that's when they're willing to take all the steps that they can to confirm the image that they have of themselves. Uh, Great, right. So if somebody doesn't have that self-conception, then maybe guilt tripping will either be ineffectual or potentially even backfire. That's right. Yeah. 
is it typically when my self-conception is threatened in this way that it gets activated? Or are there also other circumstances in which it can get activated? No, absolutely not. It, it gets activated in, as I like to think of it, every context where action is called for. But it can be triggered in various different kinds of ways. So one way that a self-conception can be triggered is a negative one. For example, if you believe of yourself, not because you want it to be true, but because you've been told that it's true, that you're not good at something. If you believe of yourself that, for example, you're not good at math or you're terrible at sports or whatever it happens to be, then when you're in a context where you're reminded of what you can call this a stereotype, if you like, it's perhaps you're not good at math because of the color of your skin or your gender or whatever else, if you're reminded of that simply through the fact that somebody reminds you of your gender or the color of your skin or the contrast between the color of your skin and that of somebody else, if you're reminded of that, even when nobody says you're supposed to be terrible at math, you're still going to perform more poorly than you would have performed had you had not been reminded at all. That's called stereotype threat. And again, that was it's Claude Steele who identified the phenomenon and put the label to it. Yeah, in a way that seems very different from the civic-mindedness case, because in the civic-mindedness case, I was able to get somebody to be more active by questioning their civic-mindedness yeah. when they already thought of themselves in that way. Yeah. I wonder whether the opposite is possible. Like, I'm not sure that if somebody belongs to a group where the dominant stereotype about that group is that they're bad at math, I can get them to perform badly on a math test by accusing them of being good at math. It doesn't seem like it would play out exactly that way. If you were the kind of person who, was high, who had an, a high anxiety feature, the feature of being anxious about your performance, then if I brought to your attention the fact that perhaps we're evaluating you to see if you meet a standard or if you're good enough to be put in the high performer category or something of that sort, if something hung on it for you, then I can raise the stakes for you in such a way that that would interfere with your performance. But only if you think of yourself already as someone who, who is capable of performing at a high level and set yourself a very high standard. Then the anxiety of not being able to meet that standard will interfere with your performance. Yeah, so maybe then in a lot of these cases that we've been discussing, what activates the relevant self-conception is some kind of question getting raised. Some, you know, it's Maybe it's not that you are this way or you aren't this way, but like the question as to whether you are this way arises. And if you want to be that way, then that's when the self-conception kicks in and starts affecting your behavior. Yeah. Yeah, that's the context in which the self-concept has a role to play in how well you do. Okay, so there are various sort of like ideals I could add to my self-conception. I might want to be a successful business person. I might want to be a great father. I might want to be civically minded, as we discussed. And, you know, there are many different things that could go on this personal list of mine. There are many different ideals that I could try to live up to. Is it possible for a person to create their own ideals in this way? Or are we always working with like a predetermined menu of options that's been kind of handed down to us by the culture that we grew up in? 
That's a great question, Matt. And the answer is that both are true. We both work with a preset menu, and in the right circumstances, when we, when circumstances favor it, we can also create options for ourselves, create elements to add to our self-conception that were not given to us and were not already part of the culture that we live in and, and applied to us directly, told that this is one of our things, as it were. And this is where freedom comes in. Freedom is the ability to modify the self-conception that is prescribed for you by your culture, your background, your circumstances. Freedom is the quality of being able to modify that. So in my view, freedom has to come long before the time of action. Whereas in most philosophical accounts nowadays, freedom is just about what happens at the time of action. Yeah, so some philosophers, I guess here I have in mind um, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, uh, but it doesn't really matter who, but some philosophers have argued that, you know, we like to think we're really free and we're, you know, we build our like personal social network profile, as it were, out of whatever we want to build it out of. But in fact, that's just what society wants us to think. And really what we're doing is we're just taking whatever, you know, something like consumer culture hands to us as the ideals. Um, and it seems like you want to kind of grant that that happens, but then also argue that there's m potentially more to a person's self-conception than just that. And being free is kind of like breaking out of the Adorno-Horkheimer kind of like trap. Exactly, exactly. So I do agree that sometimes we are given a schedule of things to meet, of expectations to fulfill, and through one form of reasoning or another, we just think of that as ourselves. Uh, and maybe we kind of um, deceive ourselves in some way into thinking that this is what we've chosen for ourselves. But that's not always the case. Sometimes one rebels, sometimes one resists. And it's in the resistance that we can really feel the exercise of freedom. So Jean-Paul Sartre gives a very interesting example to try to convince us that we're always radically free. So he talks about a certain madwoman who says that she is being called by people on the telephone who give her orders. And when asked who do these people say that they are, she says it is God. Sartre then goes on to say, but how does she know it is God? If an angel comes to me and says, gives me an order, how do I know it is an angel? It is always down to me whether I accept the authority of someone who tells me he is an angel. It's always down to me to say of someone that what they're ordering is good or evil. Great, yeah. And it seems really analogous to ideals that are handed down to us from popular culture. So maybe, you know, the TV and the magazines and so forth might hand down the ideal to me that if I want to be really cool and fashionable, I need a man bun. But at the end of the day, it's up to me to decide what I think the significance of having a man bun is and whether I want to have one. Yeah. Well, for Sartre, he clearly thought that we render 
judgments on every aspect that we adopt from our culture. But there's a real reason to worry that that picture that we just, when we accept something from our culture and self-apply it to ourselves, there's a real question of whether that's a voluntary action. Maybe we can say that we've identified the fact that it's possible to be an error about whether you're freely assembling your self-conception. But nonetheless, even if we think that it's possible to be an error about it, that implies that it's also possible to correctly (laughs) um, build your self-conception. Exactly. It's also possible to do it freely and to know that you have. Are there any examples that come to mind of somebody kind of inventing an ideal and adding it to their self-conception? Well, there's an interesting case that I'd like to put to you, and you can tell me how you react to it. Before the 20th century, everyone born female was called a woman when she was old enough, and everyone born male was called a man when he was old enough. But in our era, someone born a female can become a man, and someone born a male can become a woman. Now, when you ask those who make the transition from male to woman or from female to man, they will tell you that it wasn't really a choice. It was something that, that they experienced some kind of a, a rebellion against whichever label they happen, a man or woman, they happened to have resisted and chosen the other one instead. I think of these as very courageous acts of reinvention of the the whole category of gender. So whereas before this time, our era, it wasn't possible to self-admit into the category of woman. Do you think this is the kind of case you were thinking about? Yeah, so I guess I'm conflicted about that question because I'm not totally sure whether it would be possible for somebody to transition from the gender they were assigned at birth into being, for example, a man, and be the only person that ever did that. I think it might be the case that there has to be at least a little bit of a critical mass of people, just even a small social group. There has to be some social momentum of other people who either want to do the same thing or who are in dialogue with this person about potentially doing the same thing. Uh, There has to be some social momentum for innovations in a person's self-conception. But I'm not really sure, because on the other hand, it also feels... momentum has to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So someone has to start, and the first act will seem like strange, unusual, nobody understands what's going on with it. Once others join in, then it will have social meaning. But the first act has to be also an act that has the potential of attracting others like it. So it has to be part of that category too. Yeah. I guess I think of this as analogous to just the like general question about whether it's possible for one person to like follow a rule for the first time or whether that's a at least a little bit of a group thing as well. And what you just pointed out seems to apply just as much there as well. There has to be like the thing that I'm doing innovatively has to be intelligible to other people, at least a little bit, or potentially intelligible to other people. 
but it has to come from somewhere. There has to be some reason for it. And there we want to advert to the idea that, yeah, it, the reason is me. I'm obeying the rule for the first time. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, but it's a, yeah, I don't know. It feels like a bit of a chicken and egg thing or something. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of chicken and egg when you're thinking about the origins of self-concept or how one acquires a self-concept. So in order to acquire the concept of myself as, let's just continue with the example of civic-minded, in order for me to acquire that, I have to just sort of make it up initially. The first time I say to myself, you can say I am going to be self uh, civic-minded, but that won't work in your to regulate your behavior unless you say it to yourself as I am to be civic-minded. So it can't be just I want to be civic-minded. You have to say I am to be civic-minded. And at some point it, you stop hearing the to be part when you're thinking about yourself. And instead what you hear is I am. So you're, you're really inventing it. Those are acts of self-invention in a very important way. So let's say that there's widespread acceptance of this idea that we construct our self-conceptions out of a range of ideals which we may or may not want to live up to, depending on the situation we're in. Let's say that idea catches fire and it's generally accepted. Is it possible to exploit that idea in like a malicious way? Well, because we construct our self-conceptions consciously in the process that I we discussed earlier, the deliberation process about who I want to be, it's not as easy to hijack that process as it is to hijack processes that don't invoke our self-conception directly. So here are some processes that can be easily used against us or for us um, in the case where policymakers are trying to improve our, our behavior so that we eat better or smoke less or drink less. By engineering the choice situation in which we're choosing, say, items to put on our, our lunch tray, it has been argued that you can improve people's choices simply by putting the healthier food closer to their reach. Well, that's a way of influencing people without their knowing about it. Maybe it's, I mean, in this instance, it's a manipulation that's meant to improve their health. But you can see easily how that kind of a manipulation could also be used against their health. Oh, well, that's actually what marketing is, right? And store design. Stores are designed to sell you things that you may or may not want, as much of them as possible. And the things that are within hand reach when you're standing in the checkout line are, is what? candy. So yeah, that can be used against us. But if our approach to helping people improve their behavior is instead focused on changing their self-conception, maybe we change their conception so that they think of themselves as good citizens or people who were responsible or people who look after others, if we can help them change their self-conceptions so that's how they think of themselves, then we'll affect their behavior not only in the long term, 
but will affect it in a way that doesn't go below their radar. We'll be, they'll be able to see transparently that we're, what we're doing. It'll be more honest. And as I say, in the end, it'll be more long-term rather than getting them to purchase the thing now and regret it later. We'll get them to think of themselves as civic-minded people and be glad of what they do. And I think that that's both better public policy, but also it will be cheaper public policy because it's more long-acting and it's not liable to backfire so that when people find out what you're doing, then they'll be mad and they'll things can go sideways. Yeah, this is fascinating. I mean... There's definitely a school of thought out there. I've come across it a lot in like community organizing contexts, according to which if we want to bring about beneficial outcomes, we should stop trying to influence people's ideals and we should just set up policies that promote the right incentives. And like one example here that's sometimes given is, look, we can tell people all we want about how great it is to donate to charities, but the fact remains that the biggest change we actually see in donations to charities are brought about by changes in incentive structure. So for example, when it became possible to donate to charities via text message, charitable donations went way up. But it seems like what you've just observed is that that could be a powerful tactic for influencing large-scale outcomes in society, but it's also a potentially dangerous one because if it's possible to incentivize this kind of behavior via this kind of incentive structure, it's maybe also possible to influence people to behave badly via the wrong incentive structure. With the text message case, you didn't change the incentives by making it possible for people to donate via text. What you changed simply was their, the ease with which, in other words, you lowered the cost of compliance or the cost of donating in some sense, that's part of the incentive structure because it's just reducing costs and assuming, of course, that the positives are still in place, then it lowered the barriers to getting that done. What I'm worried about is not so much changing incentive structures because laws do that. Laws change your incentive structures and they're not manipulating you below the radar. You're fully aware when, you, when a law is published that you have to comply with the law. But it does change incentive structures if the laws, of course, define penalties for non-compliance, obviously. What I'm worried about is the reactions that people have when they find out they've been manipulated. Of course, and I'm also worried about manipulation as such. I'm worried about manipulation when we, when we manipulate choice contexts, when we engineer them, so we lower the barriers to doing bad things like buying candy when we're especially hungry. So I'm worried about that. That's a kind of manipulation. And I'm worried more about the reactions people might have when they feel they've been manipulated to a degree that they're uncomfortable with. So, for example, if we change the organ donation policy such that it becomes the default that we take your organs at death unless you've opted out, then people who are just really uncomfortable with when, if they should find out that they've been manipulated to give up their organs, they might just revolt and all opt out. 
Not that that would be an awful thing because, you know, these might be the very same people who would not have opted in in the first place. But you can see that in other circumstances, the going sideways might look quite different. The, the backfiring would have larger consequences. Yeah, right. So this is uh, like, I think right back to our civic mindedness example. Yeah. What I wonder, though, is like, how is it possible to craft policy that makes it as easy as possible for us to construct our own self-conceptions? That seems like a really abstract, non-policy-ish type of thing. Yeah. It sounds like the question you're asking is, how do we promote diversity? Or, or rather, the answer to the question, how do we promote diversity, is the same answer that I'd want to give to your question. Namely, to make it as easy as possible for us to be in charge of our lives, we have to be as open as possible to anything you might choose. How does this perspective on freedom, as opposed to other perspectives you might have on freedom, help us to live richer or freer lives? One way of thinking about freedom, at least in popular culture, is to think of it as having many, many options. The more options you have, the more free you are. And we've talked a little bit about how that more freedom doesn't automatically translate to more control over choice. Sometimes more options make it impossible for you to choose just because you're just the cognitive load is so heavy. So that's a conception of freedom that I don't think is very helpful for us in our everyday living out of our lives. Just multiply the options. That doesn't help us with living our lives. Often, if we try to seek more freedom in that way, we'll find that we're undercutting our ability to be free. But the way I conceptualize freedom is as the freedom to be, the freedom to craft who I am in my self-conception. And it's not just a picture I'm drawing for myself. My self-conception is my way of regulating my behavior long term. So conceptualizing freedom this way helps me to actually act long term in my life. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's like uh, if we go with this, I think, very popular and prevalent right now idea of freedom as the lack of anybody being the boss of me or whatever, it seems like being free in that way is no kind of guide whatsoever to behavior. It's just a bunch of things that you're not doing. Yeah. And that's a, a separate conception still of freedom. It's the conception of freedom as being not dominated by anybody else. And it's a conception that you see more often in political and legal philosophy than you do in discussions of metaphysics. And I think you're very right to say that kind of conception doesn't help me live my life either because what it says is that I don't want anybody to be the boss of me but that doesn't help me in a positive way and certainly not in a long-term way craft a narrative of who I am or an arc of behavior that is going to be long-term acting. Mariam Thelos, thank you for a discussion that has uh, most assuredly uh, enriched my self-conception. It's been a great pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, 
You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.